Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Ginny Adelsheim. We're at her home. It's uh, January 22nd, 2021. Ginny, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. And for the hospitality. Um, first question for you, uh, what got you into wine? Well, uh, I don't know that I actually ever planned on getting into wine, uh, but it happened. <laughs> Uh, my the trajectory was that um, I was a student at Portland State and I got my degree uh, in sculpture and ceramics with a minor in music and uh, met Dave there and he was also a student and uh, when he got out of the service we were both in Korea he got stationed on the DMZ and I was living in Seoul as an unauthorized dependent for a year and a half and we came back and I finished up at Portland State and got my degree. And we were living in a duplex with another couple and uh, Paul Miller and Rita Larson who were also artists. Paul was a photographer and Rita was in textiles. And at that time Dave was uh, really into building furniture. He was quite a good carpenter and self-taught. And then of course I was doing ceramics. And I had been a, the artist-in-residence at Contemporary Crafts Gallery, which eventually became Museum of Contemporary Crafts, and then that folded. But, um, and I had spent a year at, uh, in this special little studio on Corbett Avenue that was connected to the museum and, and the gallery. And uh, at the end of that year, we, this, this four of us, the couple, and Dave and I, decided to move to the country. We just, it was very unstructured idea. We just thought this would really be great if we could move to the country, build our own house, have enough land that we could grow some grapes and make some wine for ourselves, you know, and grow our own food, have chickens and ducks and on and on. And uh, so we did, we found a piece of property. But in the process of looking for that land, we ran into Bill Blosser, Dick Erath and David and Diana left and uh, totally changed everything because that was when Dave and Paul realized there were people growing grapes on in the Willamette Valley for actual commercial sale and uh, they were really interested in that so the property that we bought was was purchased with that in mind and uh, we designed our own house and we built it with our own hands, but we never got it done because we were always trying to also plant 20 acres of vines and, uh, you know, make some money so we could stay out there. <laughs> it was really hard, but uh, we managed. Unfortunately, Paul and Rita, it turned out they were not happy. Rita really did not, she was not interested in being in a wine business. She was an artist. and. Uh, and Paul and she split up and then there Dave and I were with this huge project all by ourselves 
And uh, it was really hard at first because we were trying to, like I say, finish doing all these things. And uh, we, didn't have, we didn't have any money to, to have employees. So we really w leaned heavily on our friends and our family. And this is one of the interesting things I think about the early years is that people didn't have money. Nowadays, people get into the wine business, but they're usually not just, you know, people that don't know anything <laughs> that don't have any money. <laughs> um, so uh, we, we planted the, the major part of our vineyard with the help of our family and friends. We, we, we offered them this incredible repast at the end of the day. And uh, a couple that were dear friends of ours were living with us at the time, and Barbara and Bob Pickett. Barbara started the weaving department at University of Oregon. And Bob uh, did a lot of different things. So he, he did work in the vineyard. They helped us build the house. Barbara and I laid out all the Chardonnay rows together and uh, things like that. But she was also an incredible cook. Her father was a chef. And then she worked at Genoa, which was a really famous mm -hmm. Italian restaurant in Portland. I don't know. Do you know about it? Have you heard of Genoa? Uh, heard of yeah. It. Yeah, a phenomenal restaurant. So when we offered these friends and family a repast, we weren't joking. <laughs> it was incredible, the, the kind of food that we, we put together for, for our friends and family. And that sort of became a hallmark of us. And throughout the wine years that I was there, especially it was important in the very beginning because there were just a few of us. Mm -hmm. But once Oregon became known as a possibly really good place to grow grapes, uh, people started coming from all over. I mean, like Aubert de Villene from Romani Conti mm -hmm. slept in our house on subfloors without sheetrock. <laughs> and he was wonderful. You know, he just was so open to what was going on. And that was the thing that I was amazed about, is how open everything was. Nobody had expectations or pretenses. You just did what you could do. And we shared about our knowledge with everyone else that was in the wine industry. That was really a wonderful thing, the camaraderie. And I'm sure you've heard that from other people, too, because it was obvious. <laughs> and our house and our property around the house that wasn't vineyard sort of became a, a place where people came for parties. We had a, we'd always have a, a great big party after um, the IPNC. Mm -hmm. and, uh, hundreds of people came. And, uh, and I, I think one of the, you know, if you want to know my contribution, it wasn't like I had a job description. But what I did do was to provide hospitality for a lot of people. Um, and I enjoyed doing that. And, and it was important to do, really, really important at that time for us to, uh, you know, to put on a good face for, for all these people that wanted to know about what was going on here. And uh, it was fun. We had, we, we had wonderful dinners. I wrote, I have all the menus from these incredible dinners that we put on for people from, you know, Hubert Trimbach came one time. I remember I made a apricot tart. 
He loved it. He wrote me a thank you note about my tart. <laughs> but, uh, and it was, we had music. We got people to sing with us. It was just great fun, hard work and great fun. And I learned how to do everything in the beginning because we didn't have any help. So, you know, I, except the only thing I didn't learn to do was drive the tractor. I did not want to drive the tractor. But I learned how to, we planted grapes, we pruned grapes, we harvested grapes. I learned how to run the press and rack wine and do all that. It, you know, it was just everything. And, and, uh, I don't know that you. I don't know how you could do that nowadays if you could do it like that. But anyway, you talked about the kind of the meeting, meeting the people like the Letts and, and Bill Bosser and Dickie Rath who were already had already just barely gotten started, but had already gotten started, and changing kind of David and your perspective on what you could do. So tell me about that, the idea of just living in the country and having a few grapes for yourself. What was, what was needed to take the next step, to, to, to plant that size of wine and actually start making commercial wine? Was it, was it more than you anticipated? Oh, always. Always more than we, at least I anticipated, because um, there was nothing to, to compare it to. You know, there was nobody else, well, there were the few other people that were a little ahead of us, and thank God for, you know, the, for David and Diana, because uh, Dave worked, you know, the first experience Dave Adelsheim had was working in David Letts winery. And he was, you know, very much of the Burgundian philosophy. Okay. So you mentioned that, that David Adelsheim's first experience was working with, working with David Letts. Yeah. And then his next, next step. And then he went to the Lycée Viticole in Bonn, I think it was the next year after that, and spent the harvest there, and that was really an important thing. Um, but here's another thing. Dave was traveling a lot. He was constantly, I mean, it was really amazing what he did because, first of all, he spoke German, spoke, speaks German, and, and French, but not as well. But he, I think Dave has this mentality of, of wanting to connect and educate and be educated. So he was really into that in a time when it was important because we had all sorts of things to know about clones and uh, soil and all this stuff. So he was going to like Vadensville to, to the research station there. And while he was gone, I was always home taking care of the business. And you know, so I was a really important connection to, between the employees and, and Dave. And when he was gone, they, you know, but, um, so, what was I going to say about that? Um, well, just that I think, I think it's important that I was able to stay there always. I'm not sure how we could have done it if I hadn't been that sort of stable force there to talk to the, to the guy driving the tractor or, or who knows what you know things came up and uh, and they had to be dealt with but um, as things as we got bigger and we started to have employees uh, my role s sort of changed because I wasn't having to do so many different things and uh, once we started to make more wine um, 
I decided to use my one thing that I was educated to do, which was art. <laughs> and once we had wine, we had to label it. And so I proposed to, to Dave that I do the wine label. Singular. Singular. <laughs> and, which I did. And, uh, but, they, but Dave was always interested in having a different label for every wine. So every varietal. And uh, the first wine I did, the first label I did was, um, I think this is, this was when we were buying grapes. We hadn't been able to make wine from our own grapes yet. We were still, you know, not enough fruit. So we, we got wine grapes from Sagemore Vineyard in Eastern Washington, Semillon and Merlot. And uh, my first label was just a, this is a, a sort of like a wine spirit, just fantasy, fantasy lady. And um, yeah, I did the whole thing. I drew the letters and everything. And I was trying to harken back to sort of the period of, uh, well, Art Nouveau, but also those early fruit labels where they have kind of a portrait of the fruit, you know, <laughs> in the foreground. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I did that label, and, and that was great. And then the next year, Connie, my friend Connie Keener, came to live with us for a couple of years. And uh, this was the first portrait I actually did, was of Connie, and for the, for the Merlot, because we had you know, both those wines. And, and then we started making our own wine. And at that point, Let's see, what did I do? I think I did the first harvest label, which was a winter portrait of the vineyard and the wind in the sky, because we had a tremendous north wind up there sometimes. It was really dramatic. So I put the wind, that was kind of the portrait of that particular label. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then I think all in all, I came, it was probably about 18 labels that I did. So, a lot of different drawings. And then we had, uh, um, we would have these events called rain revels that were in the springtime when it's usually raining in Oregon. And so for, for our announcements, we, I would draw these cartoons. And since it was rain revels, I had to come up with something that was sort of consistently about the rain. So the people were always in wetsuits. Completely in wets, you know, with flippers and everything out in the vineyard. <laughs> Weird thing, but it was fun. And uh, then, what else did I do as far as the art goes? Well, the, you know, the labels were the main thing as far as, as that until we had our big winery. And then, then I was doing my sculpture and terracotta stuff for that. But I also did things, um, the, the wine industry hired me to do certain art projects. I did a portrait of a, a, a Hispanic uh, man. I can't think of his name now. He was a vineyard manager in one of the uh, one of the vineyards, and they used his portrait at the uh, the big salute auction. And then a couple of years, I made um, ceramic tiles, uh, hundreds of them for for all the people that came to salute. You know, they gave them to all of the all of the people that were there as guests. And uh, I can't remember what else, but 
as far as as far as the graphics, that's the that was the main thing I did, and I was also trying to keep up my own artwork. I you know I was I was an actual artist, <laughs> and I would have a couple of shows every year in galleries in Portland of my ceramics and sculpture, and uh, and I taught some classes through Portland Community College too, just not not big you know no big deal, but. Uh, yeah, so. You talked about, in the, especially in the early days, having to know a little bit of everything because there wasn't anybody else to do it. So tell me about some of your early memories of planting or pruning or, or, or harvesting or, or pressing, some of the early memories uh, as you were getting the business started. And, and, and was it all just learned by doing or were you being taught by someone? No, we weren't taught. We made some really interesting mistakes because we weren't taught. <laughs> like, Hey, let's plant the grapes in June or July, and now they're now we have to water those poor little things. And the, that was our first planting. I shouldn't even say these things. It's like this is how they did that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, we we learned by by trial and error sometimes, and then of course things changed once Dave went to to Bonn and worked with David. We learned much more, mm -hmm. and uh, from other wine people too. Um, but I have some really vivid memories of, of things I had to do out there in the out there in the vineyard. I just the grueling nature of uh, working in a field for long hours, and oh, it takes tremendous discipline and skill that I didn't have. I might have acquired it if I had to do it a long time, but um, I was really embarrassed once we hired some of the crew, you know, that were Hispanic mm -hmm. and had real experience and uh, knowledge of how it worked. I was embarrassed to actually go out, you know, and pick grapes with them because here I, you know, they were just <laughs> going down the road, <laughs> cutting my finger off, you know. Um, there's a lot of grueling work involved with, with vineyard, vineyard work. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest, just the most thankless job of all is brush pulling. Did you do that? Mm. You know, after, the, after harvest in the middle of winter and everything's dried up, you go out there and you pull those long uh, arms that have been cut off, off of the trellising. And of course it's all wound up. And so you're ripping it, and a lot of times those things will come around and just whap you in the face, and it's just it's just uh, abusive. <laughs> and uh, let's see what else. Planting was wasn't so bad. Planting was pretty pretty good. Um, and since I didn't ever learn how to drive the tractor, I didn't have to do any of that. But I did have to learn how to work in the winery because I think it was in 1980. Dave had to be gone during harvest. And I ran that harvest all by myself. I had to run the presses and you know do help with the, the people that you know neighbors and things mm -hmm. came in. It was our equipment that we came up with. Some of it was positively medieval. I think we had some sort of pulley system on. We had a flat roof. Mm -hmm. You know how the house our house is now. There's that kind of a breezeway that goes. You can go in two directions. Well, that was all just a flat roof, and underneath it 
was the basement, which was our winery at the time, and which was not very big, but anyway. Well, we hooked up this thing. It was a big two posts and a beam going across, and it had some sort of a block and tackle thing. I don't remember how it worked. Maybe it was this kind of thing. And we get the boxes, these big, you know, boxes of grapes up on those things and tip them over into the crusher stemmer and things like that. And then when, oh, here's a, here was another amazing thing. Um, we had our first harvest, which was completely eaten by birds. We had one basket, I think. And w at which point we realized we couldn't, do it like that anymore <laughs> if we wanted to actually have fruit. So um, people were using this chemical called Measurol, which they would spray on the grapes and it made the birds sick. And uh, that was supposed to be you know, a great way to deter the birds. And I just said, no way. We're not spraying anything that's going to make the birds sick. <laughs> Certainly. You know, that doesn't make sense to me because we don't know for sure if it's going to harm us too, but I still didn't want to harm the birds. So Dave and I, or Dave, I should say, decided to see what we could do through netting. But there was no netting yet. There was no netting in the United States for the, that purpose. So he, he found something, and I think it was in Switzerland, this netting that he ordered. And it was... Um, gold, like gold filament. And it was kind of stretchy, and the holes were about this big, I think. But they were stretchy, you know, like hair, hair netting mm -hmm. straight, wasn't rigid. Mm -hmm. And we figured out this way of putting the netting, we had the posts going down the rows, and we had a nail on the top of each one, and we created this thing on the tractor that we could un roll the thing and hook it on going across like ceiling all the way down the rows 19 acres of ceiling <laughs> of netting and that was pretty spectacular we also had a film being made a feature film called pay dirt going on at the same time we were doing all this that was right during harvest and bob pickett was trying to build part of the winery which <laughs> is called total chaos and uh but the really horrible thing was, after all that effort to put that up to save the birds, the birds couldn't see the net. So they were flying down into the netting because they could see the grapes and getting stuck in the net. And um, we got a phone call from the uh, Oregon Fish and Wildlife that we had been turned in for harming the birds, and, and <laughs> I was running around, and my sisters and friends, clipping out birds with scissors, <laughs> trying to get them out of the net. And uh, so that was the last time we did that. But we still didn't give up on netting. We felt that was really the way to go if we could figure out a system that would work. And I think that was when we created our medieval spool system on the back of the tractor where you get these big bolts of net and you know they come off one person would be on the trailer with the with the bolt spool thing and another person would be walking down the row and hooking it onto the onto the nails on each post and then we also put ground staples in so the birds couldn't get in underneath 
and we'd just go down on either side of the row, you know, like curtains on either side. That was how we did it. Amazing. <laughs> if you bring up a good point, though, because when you started, not only was there not a lot of were there not a lot of people around for you to learn from, but there also the materials weren't really there. You had to. Tell me about finding the things you needed, like even just like grapes themselves and steaks and whatever else you needed. Where, where did you come up with materials to start the, the vineyard? I mean, there were some, McMinnville has some uh, uh, stores or, you know, farm stores. And I can't remember, I think that some of the, if I remember correctly, our, some of our first steaks were actually bean poles. And we had piles of those things all over the place. These big mountains of these big, you know, they weren't nice, beautiful things. <laughs> um, I think that I wouldn't be the one to ask the questions about where, where we found stuff because I never was the one that was actually looking for it. I just sort of dealt with it <laughs> once we got it. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of just, finding things and, and, and figuring out what would work best here. It was, so much of it was just trying to figure out what would work. Everything from great, what great clones to, uh, you know, like you said, what kind of grape steaks. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of the problems had never been uh, faced before, and that's why there weren't answers because there, there wasn't a wine industry. And, and we had uh, our first winery, as I said, was in our basement. It had, it had been our wood shop. And we just uh, moved the wood shop completely away. And I don't know what happened to <laughs> where we put this, the radial arm saw. It was somewhere, because we still needed it. That was a great, that radial arm saw, we pretty much built our house with that tool. That was my dad's saw, too. He's 300 years old. Amazing. <laughs> um, but it was so primitive. And we used to just, when the, you know, OSHA or whoever would come and check us out, it's like, oh, I don't know about that. But, then we expanded from the basement and we built another winery that was attached to it, you know, a bigger one that um, was a little more official. And, and we started actually fermenting. We got some tanks at that point too. We weren't just mm -hmm. trying to do it on with who knows what. Um, it's hard to think how to how to go on. <laughs> when, when you, when you, you the, the original, the original 20 acres, you talked about the, the sort of Chardonnay being one of the things you planted. How, how, do you remember how you decided what you, what was going to be planted and, oh, and where? Yeah, actually the, when we first started, we knew so little about grapes and wine. I mean, actually Dave, Dave and Paul knew quite a bit about wine and, and especially French wine. They'd been actually teaching some wine tasting classes. So they had ideas, but we were really interested in Riesling. I think the first cuttings we put in were Riesling cuttings. And, um, and then we got more involved, you know, when we found out about 
the clones, the Pinot clones, and, and, and David mm -hmm. Lett, and what people were doing. I think we got more focused on that, and eventually the Riesling got pulled out and you know, we put in Pinot Gris or something, which is now also gone. <laughs> we're getting down there. Um, but our yeah, our initial grapes were were Riesling. We're very interested in Riesling and Pinot and Chardonnay. And then later on, of course, David Lett introduced Pinot Gris to the United States. And um, and we were really interested in Pinot Gris. And I love Pinot Gris, but it was it became so popular that I guess you know it wasn't economical to really um, have that be part of the product line anymore. So. You, you talked about your role in hospitality in the early days. There wasn't obviously much of a hospitality industry yet in the area. No, there wasn't <laughs> any. Tell, tell me about that. Tell me about how, how did you sell wine? How did you find customers? How did you make these relationships with, with people like that? Well, um, we did our, I was delivering, you know, I was taking wine around uh, I didn't do Portland, I went south. I went to McMinnville and uh, Corvallis and Salem and Eugene, you know, with my boxes, cases of wine. And, uh, and we had tastings. We had, you know, the wine rebels thing, and then we had a Thanksgiving tasting. But we didn't want to have a taste, well, I was absolutely completely against having a tasting room because I lived there and and it was already problematic because our business was in the house and it, that was hard because there was I had no privacy really and to have a tasting room there cause a lot of people thought our house was a tasting room sometimes somebody just walk in the door <laughs> so it was it was a little disturbing <laughs> And also, the other thing that I think was just as important for me is the fear that somebody would get drunk and then get in a car accident leaving our house. I was really concerned about that. So our, you know, our main thing, of course, was just distributing the wine ourselves and, and uh, having our, our tastings. And, uh, and those were fun. We really pulled out all the stops for those events because it was a big deal for us. And I had to completely clear out my house. I decided after a few of those that I was never going to buy another piece of furniture that I couldn't move by myself. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it was it was great because that set setting is so perfect. You know, the house was right there, and then the valley, the vineyards in the valley were. It didn't. It almost didn't matter that our house was always unfinished because nobody noticed that they were looking out at the vineyard all the time or tasting wine and so I think if people are having fun they don't notice a lot of things. <laughs> wine always helps. And on the hospitality side of things, tell me about you mentioned sort of hosting people in, in your in your home and having being being a place to stay and a place to, to feed people. Um, that was obviously a big part of the early industry for you and for the other families who were there. Yeah. Tell me about how that sort of came about and how you handled, as the crowd started to grow, how did you sort of handle uh, people coming to visit? I just did. I, I mean, I think 
fortunately, my personality, I'm actually, uh, I really like people. I'm kind of reclusive. But when people are around me, and people come into my home, I, I enjoy having that opportunity to, to host them and feed them and play the piano and get people to sing. I, I love to do that. And, and people will do that once they feel it's okay. And it really brings, it really brings people together. Um, but I just wanted to mention how uh, Aubert Duvalin, the man who owns Romani Conti, stayed with us because there was no place to stay really. I mean, we offered and he he wanted to be. He didn't want to go to some old, you know, motel someplace. Um, and I found out that he played the piano. I don't remember how, but I found out and we had a nice conversation about music. And I said, well, do you play? And he said, oh, no, 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 I never play. I know I wouldn't do that. And I, I got him to play my piano. <laughs> I got him to play some Mozart, and he had a great time. And he sent me a beautiful, hard-bound book of Mozart's, all Mozart's sonatas. And those are the things that that make me feel good because, you know, if somebody showed me who they are and enjoyed themselves. And uh, one one of the dinners that was pretty spectacular because it was at early, early stages of our uh, time out there, so the house was really unfinished. But that never stopped Dave. He wanted to have these gatherings and bring people together that were from other countries and, you know, and they were always great experiences. People always had a good time, but um, we had to really make things, make it, make it up as far as because we didn't have furniture. For this one dinner, I think there were like 25 people, we made a table out of sawhorses and plywood. And I went and found an entire bolt of beautiful, it was like upholstery fabric from medieval times that sort of looked like that. And I just rolled that down, you know, like 20 feet of plywood and it looked pretty good. <laughs> and. Uh, that was, now Dave was really into cooking. He's a very good cook, and I, I would consider myself a sous chef, and Dave's the, the chef, but he decided, I'll never know why, this was the dinner to have sweetbreads. 20 people, sweetbreads. I had never eaten sweetbreads, let alone prepared them. And you know what sweetbreads are? There's some kind of a gland, like a pituitary gland or something, and they're all in a membrane, so you have to take the membrane off of every one of these little things. And, but that we did that, and uh, and it was a good dinner, and everybody had a great time. <laughs> so, and we learned a lot about you know it was great because food and wine are you know it's not one or the other, and so a lot of our dinners were very instructive about what worked and what didn't work, food-wise and wine-wise. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we got we got good at it. We got good at being hosts and hostess and preparing food for people. And I think we were uh, we were into it. it. It was a fun thing. And then when when Lizzie came along, she she had a a special place because she was this little girl who spoke French when she was three. 
because Dave made sure she went to French American school. <laughs> and so she could hold her own, at, you know, these tables full of a bunch of adults from France. And, and uh, I just kind of sit back and let her <laughs> talk. Because <laughs> unfortunately, I don't speak a foreign language. So I sort of speak a little bit of Italian. That was the language I learned at, at Portland State. I like Italian. Speak wine. That's close, close enough. Actually, music is my language. Yeah. yeah. Speaking so. of speaking of the wines, I'm I'm curious uh, if you remember in your kind of your own impressions of the early wines you were making. What, what, did you enjoy the wine that was that as you started as Allison started making wine? I think we did pretty well considering you know how little we knew. And, um, I mean, there were some, we had problems. There were always problems, different kinds of problems. Sometimes it would be, um, I don't know what, what caused some of the weird tastes we had. But, um, you, you know, you're, you don't just toss it out unless it's really flawed. And so I remember a lot of tweaking you know, the kinds of filtering we did and what we used, various kinds of things, DE and whatnot. And, and also, um, our equipment made such a difference. In the early days, we had the worst equipment because we couldn't afford anything better. And like that, um, that year that I had to run the show while Dave was in France or someplace in 1980, um, we had a screw press, which is just, you know, the most abusive way to, to crush or to press fruit. And, uh, and it takes forever because they have and wind the press and then you have to turn it back on and it winds back in smooshing. <laughs> so, and we had a really bad crusher stammer that was similarly, you know, abusive to the fruit. And, uh, and also we learned about how to handle fruit. I don't think in the beginning we understood that you don't just, you know, smash things. One year, I think it was the year that Veronique worked for us. Veronique Joanna, you probably know Veronique. <clears throat> we actually did tread the fruit. We had those bins that were like three feet deep and we were all in there waiting around, squishing. I didn't like the way that felt. Did you, have you done that? No. I don't know if they do that anymore. <laughs> it's a good way to get people to come out and crush vapes for you if you offer them the chance to, to step on them themselves. Yeah. So, free labor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, you know, it's an interesting business. There's so many aspects to it. It's just all-encompassing because you've got farming, you know, you've got the winemaking, you've got... Uh, having to figure out how to market and distribute and uh, the entertainment, the international uh, nature of the wine industry. So it's just so many things to be considered and uh, yeah, it, it takes kind of a, a certain kind of a brain to, to want to do that, I think. What, what appealed to you about the industry? What were the what were the your favorite parts of, of being in it? Well, I like I said in the very beginning, I really wanted to live in the country. That was the driving thing for me. 
And uh, my grandmother, um, my mother's mother, grew up on a homestead in Indiana, and she she was a writer. She was she was a writer and a composer and an artist. She did everything. But she wrote all these stories about her childhood, which my mother read to us. And I had this totally romanticized picture of living in the country because of that, you know. So it wasn't quite like that. We, we, we tried in the very beginning. We got ducks and chickens and geese and, <laughs> and uh, you know, we grew our own food and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, I... What was the question? <laughs> How did I get off on chickens? <laughs> what, 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 what were the, your favorite things about being in the industry? What, what appealed to you about, about the industry, about being around wine or being around the vineyard? Well, I think, like, yeah, as I just said about being in the country, and I also enjoyed uh, cooking and preparing food with, uh, you know, wine and food together. That was, that was really fun for all of us. I think everybody in the wine industry could say that because you wouldn't be doing it otherwise. Um, and I and I liked helping out in the way that I could as an artist, you know, and and uh, just basically being a helpmate as much as I could. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel like I ever really became uh, mastered any of the aspects of the farming or the winemaking because I never had that um, well, I didn't have the desire, actually. You know, my profession is as an artist, and and I mean, many women in the wine industry did take. I mean, Susan Blosser, for example. You know, she was, and Nancy Ponzi were very much more partners in the actual wine part of the wine business. Mm -hmm. But mine was a little different. But I do feel like, even though I wasn't, you know actively doing uh, things that were involved with making the wine or, or tending the vin vineyard, um, my, I feel like my role was in how to portray the wine industry visually. And it, I, I had a great amount of freedom because there were no wine labels, pretty much, except for David Latt, you know, who had a beautiful wine label. But nobody had really started doing illustration on labels yet. And so I got to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a lot of recognition because it was new and different and, you know, stuff like that. But, and then a lot now, you know, it's hard to find a label that doesn't have some, something illustrated. And so that was interesting to, to be able to do that. And, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, the other thing about the being out there in the wine business was, uh, well, I'm going to talk about something that's not necessarily a positive, but it's, it's something that I guess is inevitable. And my fantasy when I was talking to you earlier about, you know, living in the country was very, very much natural environment. You know, you're in the country and things are growing around you and stuff, but you're not in control. Mm -hmm. Once we were really in the wine industry, I was very aware of how much control over land you have when you're in there. It's very structured. It's almost, vineyards are almost more rigid than anything. You can't even run across 
the land like you can in an orchard. You're going up and down, you know, and and it's, you know, nothing but grapes. So I started to get really concerned about monoculture and, and I think that's one of the one of the issues that's now in the forefront because it's been so obvious that this is not the right approach. We've got to figure out a way to be more diverse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean everything from wildfires to to just the health of the soil and, and the bees and everything. So um, I, I started to really get sort of depressed by that because as I saw more and more vineyards going in and more and more trees coming down and then when they started putting up nine-foot fencing because they didn't want to, the deer mm -hmm. into coming into the vineyard, I started to freak out actually because I was fenced in and um, <laughs> that seemed really antithetical to my fantasy. <laughs> you know, freedom in the country. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, all those things, if you're a farmer, they're all necessary to, to protect your fruit. But it didn't seem like it had to be that extreme. And I think, you know, I'm out of touch now, but I know there's a lot more concern about all of those things now, and research is being done to figure out how to I mean, one of my big things was uh, the loss of corridors because of fencing. And um, I thought, well, why can't we just give them one of the rows so they can get up the mountain, you know? And if they eat the grapes on there, the actually the shoots on the way, so be it. But anyway. Definitely ahead of your time in that thinking, and it is very much more prevalent now in the industry. Well, sure. it's sort of interesting because I'm 75, and so I grew up during the first big environmental boom. The first Earth Day was 1971, and I think, or 70, I think it was 1970. And uh, in the 60s, uh, Rachel Carson had written Silent Spring, which my mother, my mother was super into Rachel Carson. And, read us her books and you know that was that that book was just a stunning uh, expose of just how out of touch the science was with what was really happening to animals in DD, with DDT and then there was Jacques Cousteau who was also a major force for the ocean health so my whole I my whole idea about how to live in the country had to do with how to take care of it as well as, you know, live off of it. And when I started to see things becoming so um, more money-based, you know, because that's how it is with business, you know, you're in business to make money. But it just became such a departure from what I had experienced wanted it. Yeah. Did you find that that was something that other people in the kind of nascent industry were concerned about as well? Obviously a lot of people got into early Oregon wine as the kind of back to land movement mm -hmm. like you talked about. Did others share your concerns? Well, I didn't really talk about it very much. I think at that point it was when it was really becoming apparent to me it was already in the 2000s. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
lots and lots of vineyards had gone in, and um, actually, I think Dave and I were split up too by then. So I was really having all, you know these thoughts all by myself, and I was living out there by myself at that time too, because Dave moved out. So, um, yeah. But I think that's how it is with anything. You know, you have some little thing that you you nurture and comes to life and it grows and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you have to think about, oh my God, it's taking over. I have to figure out a way to, you know, sort of keep it in control so it, it doesn't start to destroy other things. And um, I think that's my impression of the wine industry now. I think that Lizzie's generation of, of how old are you? 22. Okay, you're still really young. <laughs> but, you know, the people that are uh, children of my gen, the children, you know, my children, mm -hmm. um, like uh, Mimi, mm -hmm. uh, she's really, uh, I, I consider her the kind of people that are going to keep the industry going in the right direction mm -hmm. because they understand all of that. So you had talked about your labels earlier and your kind of process. Tell me about, as as you had to make more and more, tell me about the, the inspirations. Obviously, we, we know some of the famous ones, the, the your portrait of Diana Lett, for example, which is on the wall of our archive. Um, but how, what were your inspirations and what were you trying to portray with some of the labels as you started doing more and more portraits? Well, um, when I did my first portrait of my friend, my dear old, oldest friend, Connie, um, I was thinking in terms of what I could do, I mean, first of all, and I knew I could draw a face. I, I enjoyed drawing people, and so that, that made sense to me, and I thought, well, there's so many women that are working really, really hard in this industry, but it's always, you know, the men that are getting all the <laughs> accolades, and, and we, they don't really know what we're doing. So I wanted to um, sort of pay homage to, to them, to the women. That was really it. Mm -hmm. And of course, Diana, geez, <laughs> she was the really the one that really had to be on her own because there was nothing really happening at that point besides what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but she, I, I grew up in this part of the world. I'm an or I grew up five blocks from where I am now. And uh, but she came from Arkansas. You know, so different and uh, I, I mean Diana is, if there ever was a great hostess, it's Diana. I learned from her. I learned a lot from Diana just by watching how she is, you know, with people. She's just got it. I don't know if that's her or the South or both or whatever. <laughs> Anyway, I'm, I'm so thankful for those people, for the Lats and for, you know, the early pioneers because uh, they were all really wonderful people, are wonderful people, I should say. And, uh, yeah, it was, I'm very lucky that I got to be part of that early time. I just, it was pretty magical, actually. This is the only one that I used a nail on. <laughs> this was our neighbor boy, Scott Whitehurst, who worked in the winery with us when we were still in the basement. 
And I thought, well, you know, it's kind of a Huckleberry Finn kind of thing, <laughs> lying under the grapevine. I thought it was pretty cute. But it didn't sell well. Not nearly as well as women, so I, I went back to women. But there's Lizzie. This is my goddaughter, Caitlin. This is Connie. I did two of Connie because we did a reserve Merlot for a while there, I guess. That's Rihanna Doan. Her father was our vineyard manager, and her mother also worked in the uh, in the vineyard. She's uh, their daughter, and that's Barbara Pickett. She and Bob lived with us, and she's the one I was telling you about that was the, um, the, the textile artist. And there's Diana and, and Rita. She and her husband that she divorced when they left, but they were the original couple that we were. This is my sister Susanna and my sister Corinna. So there you have that's the um, first harvest label. This is the building of our house. See, that's our house. Isn't that funny? <laughs> it's just a big block box. And we used to sleep on the deck and we didn't even have railings. <laughs> we were crazy. Yeah, this is when we started building the winery, and I was pray. I had just given birth to Lizzie, so I was in the bedroom. I think I was nursing her or something. And this, I saw this thing coming over the house, this big thing, and I didn't know what it was. It totally freaked me out. And they were going to pour all this concrete, and they did this, had this huge thing from the truck that went over the house and dumped it down over here somewhere. Yeah, that was amazing. We lived in the basement for the first year. We slept on piles of lumber and we climbed ladders. We had no stairs and we had two stories, so we climbed ladders all for like five years. Even our cats learned how to climb ladders. <laughs> <laughs> and then here we have the planting experience. I hope you don't mind me doing oh, this. Please, no, this is fine. This, this is amazing. Um, so this is kind of confusing because these are actually separate photographs. But this was the year we planted our first grapes when Paul and Rita were still with us. Here we are with this tank. We're watering away, trying to keep things alive. They didn't do too well in, in spite of that. And uh, this was our big first big planting party. This is my father and Dave's father, and we, remember I was telling you that we had this big dinner, we offered our friends and family tons of food if they'd come out and help us plant, and uh, see this, we, we went to the dairy and they gave, we were able to get all these milk cartons, and we just opened up the bottoms and, you know, put them over to protect the, the cuttings when we put them in. But isn't that an interesting effect, all those milk cartons? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's Bill and Terry Doan, whose daughter Rihanna was one of the labels. Mm -hmm. And there I am in my overalls. <laughs> I think that was the year that I actually ran the harvest. This is, at the very beginning, I think the first year we were out there, the second year, we built this Quonset hut for a greenhouse, and we were trying to propagate our own cuttings with leaves, with single leaves. I can remember, I don't know how we did that. I guess there was some way that you could possibly do it, but uh, 
it was a, it was really hard. We had a lot of problems with powdery mildew because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was just you know getting that water th watering thing right. Mm -hmm. And this is harvesting. This was our harvest. This was what was left after the birds ate wow. all of our grapes that <laughs> year. <laughs> that was our dog Jodo. He was a great dog. Here's Dave. This was when we had a really, with our terrible crusher stemmer. That's the year I did, this is me. This is the year that I was doing the harvest and all by myself. Well, not all by myself, I had people. Dave was gone. Does, some of the, Dave with the video camera in this one? It's like a camcorder, maybe? Oh, yeah. That was back in the day when they had those things that weighed about 20 pounds. Yeah, Dave took that all around and took videos. He would always take those to French-American school when Lizzie had a performance. And all the fathers were in the back doing that with their <laughs> big things. <laughs> You're too young to know. <laughs> There's the, this is back in the day when we had a little funky basement winery. Well, actually, that was... What's that? Oh. I wish we had a picture, a picture of when we had the Merlot. We, we had this kind of a trench in front of the house that um, it was just a big big, narrow, kind of dark thing. It wasn't very wide, maybe like not even as wide as this room. And it went the whole uh, length of the uh, that area that's the front of the house. And we had to get more space from the, we needed more space. The basement wasn't enough. So Dave and but Bill, our vineyard manager, rented a one of those masonry saws that's a, like a uh, like a circular saw, and they decided they were going to cut through this like eight inch thick aggregate concrete wall to this enclosed this space, and they almost killed themselves. They almost died of asphyxiation from the diesel fumes. And, and they were lying around on the ground outside <laughs> trying to cast me <laughs> Anyway, we got somebody in there to finish off that job. But we did use that for the demo. <laughs> You're making me remember so many weird things. Oh. It's my gift. Yeah. There's Veronique. Look oh my at God, her. is that Veronique? Look at her. She's so cute. She was just a young and. Can you see her, Titania? Yeah, that was the year we stomped them. They don't have a picture. There's no picture of that. These are our neighbor boy. This is one of our neighbor boys who was helping us bottle wine. Oh yeah, I had to do that too. I forgot. We bottled and labeled all our wine at home too. And I used to, I remember doing that with Lizzie on my back. I had her in a back carrier thing and I was just And then we were into the now we're doing this is after we actually had enough wine to 
Well, no, it was, we had, didn't have that much, but this was one of our tastings. And this was when Connie was living with us, so she, these are her paintings. Mm -hmm. She did wonderful things. Here's Lizzie helping out with one of the wine tastings. <laughs> Can you see her? This is after one of the IPNC, well, one of the IPNCs, and we had one of those big parties. And we'd have a huge table outside, another one of those plywood things <laughs> with lots of food. And this, this is Lizzie going down the vineyard. That was a very sad day because that was the day our kitty cat died, Bunny. Mm -hmm. And uh, we went and dug up a part of the area around uh, the big black walnut tree on the side of the road there. And uh, as we were burying her, Lizzie took off down the vineyard, ran all the way down and we ran after her. She was down at the bottom of the vineyard and there was, it was wet because it was like January. And she found this little stream there and she was completely engrossed because there was a worm in the stream that was trying to get out of the water. And she, she didn't want to leave. She was having such a good time. And then, this is, I did all of this, I did all of our so-called landscaping. Lots and lots of brickwork, which was really fun. I love bricks. This was Gerard, um, what's his name, the British wine writer. Oh, can't think of his name. Here's when I got the, we got the Governor's Award at the State Fair. I was pregnant with Lizzie. Yeah, and that's a Tia. Oh my gosh, it is. Yeah, and there's Lizzie on the tractor. I think she drove it once. <laughs> and... Here's Dave mowing the lawn. I think that's the only time he did that, but I got my camera out <laughs> and took a picture to document it. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh, he killed me. He me say things like that. <laughs> you, you, you brought up an interesting point earlier when you were talking about your labels and, and the, the kind of the women behind your labels and the women, the women behind the industry. And, uh, and it's something we've heard a lot about, especially in, in, as you've talked about today. You did a lot. You pulled a lot of weight, um, uh, kind of uh, outside of the outside of the limelight of the industry. Tell me about your yourself and the other women at the time, the Diana, Diana Letts, and, and those and, and sort of how you what your what, the, what your attitude was as you were as you were doing all this work and the industry was just starting to get recognized, but it was the men who were getting recognized. How, how, how did you well? I mean, that? I, that I make it sound worse than it really was. Uh, I think. I never felt, certainly among my colleagues in the wine industry, any kind of uh, differentiation between what the men were doing and what the women were doing. It's, it seems to be a chronic problem that, you know, when people are writing about something, they tend to focus a lot. It's changing, though. You know, focus on what the man does and, and don't realize just because it's uh, not in her name or, or whatever that that she hasn't really been participating or, or that it's not significant mm -hmm. but um, I think I think there's a lot of a lot of respect for women in the wine industry and maybe sooner than in a lot of other places because I'm just thinking you know there are quite a few and, and when did Lynn Penner Ash 
the gosh, that was in the eighties. Late eighties, yeah. Yeah. So, and there are lots of women that are in places of positions in positions of of winemaker and vineyard manager. I mean, all of it. So it's it's really incredible. It's great. Um, and I always felt like I was respected for what I was doing. That pe people appreciated my my contribution. You know, whatever. I was doing artistically, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, well, I think that there's a lot of artistry involved in winemaking, so it was it was a good fit for me, because like Dick Ponzi, for example, his one of his dearest friends, Ray Grimm, was my mentor. He was the teacher that taught me everything I know about ceramics. He was the head of the ceramics department at Portland State. <clears throat> and, uh, and he and Dick designed the weather machine at Pioneer Courthouse Square. And, you know, that's a pretty fun thing. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so, so it seemed like it was sort of an arty an arty thing to be in the wine industry. And I, and I was able to keep on doing my own thing too. And eventually after I uh, realized that we were never going to make enough money uh, to finish the house, because <laughs> that was before we got partners, uh, I decided to start my own business and see if I could actually make enough money through that to, to at least get Lizzie's bedroom done before she moved out. <laughs> so I started Fondo Terracotta, mm -hmm. and that was in 92, I think. And I took over our old winery at the house. Not the basement, but the actual winery. And I made that into my so-called factory, I guess. And then... Um, I was able, and then Corinna, my sister, became my partner, and we, she had had her own businesses, so she understood about having sales reps so we could sell out of state and things like that, and that was good. I got Lizzie's bedroom done. <laughs> so the, what, was, what exactly was the business? It was, uh, well, it was called Fondo Terracotta. Fondo is the, the base word for uh, fundament or foundation in Italian, you know, it means the earth, the very bottom. And uh, we were totally focused on doing terracotta, red terracotta exterior uh, architectural ornament and garden stuff. So that was the, that was it. This has some pictures of uh, some of the stuff that I, that we did. Just give you an idea. Oh my gosh. This is a big lion head fountain. This Larry Ferrara has that. He was the architect for our winery. Oh my gosh. This is the elephant fountain. That was in a very ritzy place. Pedestal, bird baths, lots of bird baths. Yeah, anyway, stuff were, like that. Were they things that you were creating on your own, or were they things you were being asked to create? Were you your own designs? or? or yeah, something? our own designs. We did our, you know, we sculpted the masters, 
and then made plaster molds of everything so that we could mass, well, mass produce <laughs> is kind of a euphemism, um, because we were just press molding by hand everything into the clay. It wasn't like slip casting where you're just pouring it in and, and dumping it out. It's very physical work. And because, uh, I mean, like when I did the, when we did the sconces, the light sconces for the winery, that took over a ton of clay. It, every sconce was 25 pounds starting, and so you're pounding <laughs> this stuff, and that's how you have to do it. You really have to physically pound into the molds to get that all the way into every little interstice, and then wait till it's uh, dry enough that you can pull it out without it, it break or being misshapen somehow. And it's tricky because it has to be at the right dryness, not too dry, but not too wet either. And that was a real, I think that was probably the hardest project was doing the sconces because it was a curved wall and clay shrinks. And so you had to do these weird calculations to make sure that the curvature and the shrinkage would, you know, match up with the, and Bob, my uh, friend Bob Pickett uh, was our he became a partner in our, our business, so there were three of us, Corinne and myself and Bob. And he was the one that figured out all these kinds of things, you know, calculating uh, the curvature, so when we made the mold, it would, yeah. So that was, that was a big, big job during those sconces. There were 82, I think. So that had to be times 25. <laughs> That's a lot That's of clay. Those, those molds are still down in the, in the basement in the old winery. And I don't know what to do with them. There's so many, and they're so heavy. I've got tons of molds in my basement I, that I carted away. Not of those, not of the sconces, but of other things. I didn't take the things that I made for the winery. I figured, well, if anything breaks, at least you know there's the mold there. They can have somebody or me make another one if they have to. But um, I, I really enjoyed doing that, having that experience of working with the with Larry Farrar and doing the winery. <clears throat> tell me about you, you, you talked about you, you kept your art up the entire time and you were doing shows. And tell, so tell me about some of the art, your, over the years, some of the art you've created, some of the things you're, you're proud of, and, and, are, and are you still creating art today? Yeah, yeah I am. Um, I, I took a long hiatus for like, 10 years. <laughs> I had a lot of transitioning to do after I moved away from there, and it was, it was a hard time for me because I didn't. I had to kind of refigure out, you know, how I was going to move forward, and uh, and I didn't really want to do that. I, I sort of rejected it for a while, <clears throat> and I went back to school <clears throat> in uh, what year was this? Two thousand and six. I went to PCC to get. A, I wanted to get a degree in psychology. And I was thinking of, I wanted to do art therapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, get out of it, being in the production of art and actually, you know, help people buy my art or something. Mm -hmm. Buying it, not buying it, but helping yeah. them through art. Um, and, uh, and I really enjoyed these psychology classes. It was fascinating. And one of the classes that I took, I had to take, was uh, abnormal psych. And for that class, you had to have 60 hours in a practicum at some organization that was dealing with mentally ill people. Mm -hmm. 
and I was really concerned about veterans and war and all that. So I got managed to get myself into a, a place in the VA hospital where they had an outpatient clinic for veterans. <clears throat> and, and they didn't really have an art therapy program. So the first couple of years, I would just go and hang out with veterans during their, they have sort of like a place where they can just come and have a get a lunch, have a hot lunch and play chess and checkers and whatnot. And uh, I sort of got myself in there and then I started having, you know, starting doing art projects with them. And that evolved into an actual sort of a special art therapy group, which I did until last March when they stopped everything. So it was 12 years of being there. And that was a really good experience for me. I never got to the point where I decided to, you know, become an actual psychologist because that would have required more time in school and I didn't really need to have that. I, I was already doing what I wanted. And I wasn't doing, you know, I wasn't getting into it for the money. I was getting into it because it's what I wanted to do. And then the other thing that happened was my um, goddaughter, Caitlin, who's on the Chardonnay Reserve label, <clears throat> very tragically uh, had a son who was uh, severely handicapped. He was deprived of oxygen at birth from a, a particular thing that happened right at the time she was having her giving birth. And uh, so he was, he's completely helpless. He's 14 now, but he couldn't do anything. He can't even eat and can't walk or talk, or, but he can hear. He has great hearing. And uh, so that was my connection with, with Che, was music. And I started taking care of him a couple days a week, um, a year after he was born. And I did that too up until the pandemic. So those were really important parts of my life, you know, that allowed me to, to do what I love, art and music, with, with people that I cared about. <clears throat> and so I've been kind of floundering around here trying to, <laughs> like a lot of people, I think. Um, but, yeah, I don't think that really was what you wanted to know. That was an incredible, <laughs> much better answer than I would have had you. <laughs> uh, how have you remained involved with, with the winery over the years? Well, I haven't really been very involved because once Dave and I got divorced and I moved away, there really wasn't any way for me to participate. Um, I had a fantasy, but that was really unrealistic, you know, that Dave and I could still somehow, you know, be partners and we'd do all that. But that wasn't going to happen, Dave, you know, and Eugenia, you know, this is a woman who really understands the wine industry and is a great partner for Dave. And I'm really happy for him. But it made me have to really reconsider how I was going to move forward with my own life. And um, I actually just recently was asked by, um, what's her name in, the wine, in our winery? Is it Stephanie? She, wants, she wanted me to do something, um, design a label or something for the 50th anniversary 
And uh, I decided I didn't want to do that. Because she already had a whole lot of ideas of what she wanted it to be. And, and I felt like I didn't want to get into a situation where I was being controlled. You know, if I couldn't express my own whatever it was about this 50th anniversary, I just didn't want to do it. I didn't say that to her, but that was what I came up, that was the thought I realized I had. Mm -hmm. And so I, when I had that interview at the winery, at the house with Dave for the, for our 50th, mm -hmm. um, she talked to me then, and I also showed her some other things that I had done, because she was curious, you know, and one of the things I showed her was that I had designed this uh, t-shirt for Steamboat in 1991. It was, did you, have you seen that? Yeah. It, it, was, it was a big, splashy wave, sort of a hokusai concept, you know, um, with this wine barrel in it. And you know the name, and it says, and the fish were jumping out of the water, and then the S was two trout, but they were in the shape of an S, and on. And she loved it, and she really pushed for me to to offer, give her that design to make into a T-shirt that would commemorate the thing. I said, that's great, you know, that's easy. <laughs> you can do that. So, but. Um, With, 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 with the 50th anniversary, what do you kind of hope the legacy of, of Adelsheim is uh, as you look back on, on that, those years? Well, um, I hope that they will remember all the things that um, were done in the very beginning, you know, to, to make, I, I don't take any credit for this, but um, Dave certainly does. I think the fact that he and uh, Ponzi and Lett and Blosser were, you know, the founders meant that there was real integrity in the way the industry was born. I mean, one of the first things that Dave was really concerned about was the labeling laws, or lack thereof. <laughs> and the fact that California was labeling things, Burgundy, Bordeaux, Champagne, and you know, didn't tell you anything about what was going on in the wine, what kind of grapes or anything. So that was, that was really an important thing. And of course, that, that's not going to, well, maybe it will change, because things don't always stay the same. But <laughs> that was really important, and that should be remembered, because it did change labeling, not just in Oregon, but I think it forced this country to have to reckon with that, with truth in labeling mm -hmm. thing. <clears throat> um, the other important thing was the research that Dave did uh, on where, where grapes could be planted in the Willamette Valley. You know, he did all those incredible maps. I remember him oh, night after night. Dave's got this table with all these topographical maps and all of his highlighter pens. You know, he's going every little line he's following. <laughs> You know, what the elevation is, you know, this is this is perfect, you know, this has got to be, can't can't be developed on that property, that's going to be land for growing things. And uh, then they did, I think that was uh, the reason they, they had those zoning laws. Um, 
And then all the clonal research they did, that was absolutely essential to, to what was put in the ground. Um, what else? Well, I think that we've, we're trying to do the right thing by our employees. We've got, we've got the, uh, you know, the medical truck, yeah, things like that. I, I don't know so much about what's happened since I left, though. And I have, I admit I haven't been keeping up. <laughs> why was it so important? It, why were those things so important to the, to the founders? Why, the labeling laws and the land use legislation? The industry wasn't really even an industry yet. There were only a few people making commercial wine. But yet they were so concerned about protecting the future. Do you remember why, when those conversations came up, why it was so important to protect this future of this industry that didn't even have a sure future yet? Um, well, I don't know exactly. I think it, it just, you know, it's at an attitude, uh, you know, an attitude of, of honesty. And um, I think once Dave and, you know, the others were aware of how uh, wrong it was to, to be labeling wines in ways that didn't, didn't tell the consumer anything. They didn't want to do that. And, uh, and of course they wanted to plant clones that were gonna actually grow here and produce good wine. So, I mean, there's a certain amount of self-interest involved with those decisions, but, <laughs> but they're also good for posterity because that's the right way to go. So, and I think we were all, I think people, pioneers so-called, tend to be idealistic people. You know, you have to have a positive, hopeful uh, attitude in order to take a leap and do things that you're not going to be sure how it, how it's going to turn out, but you have you have enough idea that you you have faith that it will turn out. Absolutely. You talked about the pandemic that we're all struggling with right now. Um, as you're as we're hoping to be coming out of it soon, what are you sort of looking forward to getting back to? What are what are you, what, are you, what is next for you? Oh, that's a good question. Well. Um, getting outside again. <laughs> I'm looking forward to spring <laughs> and summer. I'm a big fan. I garden. I mean, that is as important to me as music and doing things in clay. Um, and so in starting next month, I will be setting up my back bedroom into a little mini greenhouse. I have 12 grow lights and I grow hundreds of starts. And some of those, most of those, I donate to um, this organization that Lizzie found out about called Growing Gardens. And they provide food for um, people that are homeless or people that are really, you know, struggling. Food. And, uh, and they have community gardens and stuff. So that's really fun. And then I, you know, start for my friends and I have do my own starts for the garden. And, and uh, and I'm going to get involved. I, I went to a big meeting, a Zoom meeting, um, a week ago in Lake Oswego for this. Uh, it's called the Lake Oswego Sustainability Network. Mm -hmm. And 
they, I was really impressed with what's going on in Lake Oswego. They're really taking seriously, you know, how to how to take care of the environment. And one of the things I'm interested in getting involved with is the growing food programs that are in the schools now, or starting to be in the schools. See how I can help with that. I'd love to get back at the VA or or in taking care of my god grandson, but I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, some people are saying this is going to go on for another couple of years. Huh. Yeah. I might be dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, sooner, sooner rather than later, we need, we need that. What about with your, with your art? What are you, what are you working on with your art right now? Well, right before Christmas, I um, made a bunch of pots, and I, my, I set a goal. I said, I've got to make enough pots before Christmas to fill my big kiln, which I managed to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I can show you some pictures. Oh, this is my broken screen. Oh, well. <laughs> I have two iPads, but the one that I like is still my old one. Isn't that sad? The broken screen. Let's see here. For a while I was doing very serious sculptures and then I just decided uh, it was too heavy. I needed to do things that were just fun, you know, and that's what I did this last, oops, I went too far. This last time, you know, I'm just going to do things that are uh, Simple, hand-built, useful, that's it. I did all those portraits over there on the wall. Those are beautiful. Those are portraits I did for Bravo Youth Orchestras. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. <laughs> it's a program that's uh, in the Portland Public Schools in the very poorest. It started in Rosa Parks, which is the poorest school in Portland mainly, you know, black, Hispanic population. And, uh, God, how did I get so far? And um, I heard about that when they first started in 2000, I think it was 14. Uh, I met the director, Seth Truby, and uh, really hit it off with him. I was really interested in what this program was all about. It started in Venezuela, called El Sistema. And have you heard of it? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it was started 50 years ago, and this man wanted to, uh, this Venezuelan man, wanted to get music education actually as a part of the school curriculum, and he was really concerned about the poorest children not having any way to learn how to play instruments, because you have to have money to buy an instrument, and then you have to have money to pay a teacher. Mm -hmm. So he managed to get this program started in Venezuela, called El Sistema, where he actually had learning how to play violins, cellos, violas, all of that, in public school starting at grade two. And this was such a huge success, it spread all over the world. And it finally came to Oregon in 2014. And it started, and now it's in seven schools. Um, it's just a phenomenal program because it, it's transforming these kids. They don't necessarily turn into, you know, professional musicians, but it changes them. 
it changes them in so many ways. And when you look at the study that they've done, they, every year they give you, you know, pr a printout showing you how do these kids compare to the kids that aren't in Bravo in terms of attendance, their grades, their discipline problems. It's off the charts. I mean, it's so exciting. So I said to Seth, I said, I would love to draw some kids. I just love to draw some portraits of, of the kids doing, playing their instruments. I want them to be interacting with their instruments. I don't want them to just stand there holding it and looking at me. And he said, sure, go for it. So I drew these drawings and he liked them so much he made, had them made into cards. So they use those now for their, you know, thank you notes or whatnot. And, uh, and it's, it's just really nice. I've done that for a couple of years. And, um, it's kind of a way to keep drawing because I don't, I'm not, I don't draw like some people where you just, when I want to do something just spontaneously to be creative, I head for the piano. That's, that's my go-to thing. <laughs> it's, it's a different thing. Drawing is much more intense and uh, it's more demanding of me in a way. I don't, I don't have a kind of well, p portraiture is demanding. I think if I were doing something that was more free or abstract or something, but you know when you draw somebody, you have to think about how they look. And, it, and you have to really work at it because it doesn't take much for you to make it not look like that. Here's some of the planters in the top part. But you know, they're really crude. I, I like the crudeness of clay. It's so freeing, you know, it's just plastic. and. And I like texture, so it's, it's fun. I did a, a couple of sculptures that, um, if, if you want to go down in the basement and see my studio quickly, if you have time. Um, I did a sculpture of, at the time, Cheney was vice president, and I was, oh, I was so angry with Cheney. I did this sculpture that, um, was sort of about, about um, arrogant greed. In fact, the title was Cracks in the Armor of Arrogant Greed because this sculpture that I did literally cracked without my doing anything. And I, at first I was upset and then I thought, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> it's just really, and, but what was so amazing is that Trump came and he was that sculpture. He truly epitomized that sculpture. But then I dropped it and I chipped it and it didn't totally break though. It just chipped out in certain places and at first that bothered me and then I thought, that's okay too. <laughs> it's just another aspect of destroying this maniac. And, uh, but, and then I did it, I started getting really upset about the refugee problem and I still am of course. But, I wanted to try and do something to depict that. And I, I did one sculpture of a woman who uh, I had seen a photograph of and I didn't have the photograph, but I remembered it. And, uh, and I really liked this sculpture and I had it on my mantle. And my mirror fell off the wall and knocked it off and just totally broke it to smithereens, which was, that did upset me because that piece I did like, but. I don't know. It just is the way, you know, things
come and go and it's all just stuff. I'm learning how to let go. You gotta do that someday. Difficult, but, but healthy. <laughs> yeah. It is. It's always difficult to let go because it, you know, you, if you love something. I have too many pictures. I think that's the real problem. I don't know how to edit. I mean, I do, but I don't know how to be disciplined enough to do it, you know, when I should, which is right at the very time you take something. Okay, here's one of my cartoons. I couldn't find the sculpture. terrible. It's so disrespectful. He doesn't, re he doesn't really deserve any respect though. I have to find my other one that, and then I won't, I won't bother you anymore with my <laughs> stupid stuff I do. It's, it's, it's amazing to see all the different kinds of art you, I mean all the different kinds of mediums and all the different kinds of styles. It's, it's an impressive array. I don't know. I just, you know, it's funny. This depends on what what's happening is certain things certain kinds of certain media are more appropriate than others for certain things and i don't do any of it very well but you know i would argue with that at least, at least the clay for sure is amazing oh this isn't any this this is i have to just show you this because i thought it was so hilarious <laughs> um Two years ago, when I was down at the beach with Diana Lett, she had, they, had a, they have a beach cabin down there at Sitka. Um, we went into the Rite Aid in, in uh, Lincoln City. It was right before Halloween. And I found this life-size skeleton. And I've always wanted a life-size skeleton. Not a real one, of course. But it was all folded up and hanging, you know, in the section of Halloween stuff. And, and I thought, what's going on there? And then I realized, you know, it was the whole thing. And it was $60. And I thought, oh, gosh, that's a lot. And then I thought, no, it isn't. Not for a skeleton. <laughs> so I took it up to the checker. And she was like, okay. And, I, and, I, and she said, oh, it's half price. So I got it for 30 bucks. And this is what I did for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> I, what was really great is when I, when I put that out there, I was out there in the yard and this little girl came by on her bike and she said, I'm glad he's wearing a mask. <laughs> I thought, yeah, there you go. Oh, man. Like, oh, here's my other one. Here's the equal justice under law. Trump with wrecking ball. <laughs> That's a very good depiction. I'm, I'm impressed. I sent that to Nicholas Kristof. You know who he is. Mm -hmm. You know he grew up in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, he just written a column that that day on uh, the importance of political cartoons and how much more how much more effective they are than. I'm saying this as a you know. Writer. Uh, yeah, as an opinion writer for. The New York Times, and, uh, and it was a great column, and I thought, well, I'm going to write him a thank you note and send him my cartoon. 
so I did. <laughs> he didn't write me back. I didn't really expect him to, but anyway. He's growing grapes now. He and his family have a vineyard. Really? Up, uh, up in uh, up in Gaston, basically, sort of near Elk Cove. I'll be darned. They started um, Christoph Family Farms. They're growing other things as well, but they're, they planted grapes a couple of years ago. Do you know what kind? I don't. I haven't been there yet, but I'm hoping too soon. But uh, he and his wife and uh, they have three kids who are all involved in the project in one way or another, either oh. um, doing the, 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 the farm work or the marketing work or whatever. So uh, another another small little vineyard project up in That's the hills. something people really got, like to get into. <laughs> well, maybe you'll interview him. That's the plan. Yeah. Hopefully this, hopefully this year. Are you guys done? Uh, well, let me wrap it up really quickly. Oh, okay. Um, thank you so much. Oh, you're your so welcome. Your stories and all of the amazing visual aids today is a, a, a special treat for us. <laughs> uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.